Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, a podcast for and about the people of the Nashville restaurant scene. Now here's your host, the CEO of New Light Hospitality Solutions, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host. Today, our guest is a... uh, a James Beard award-winning writer. His name is Howie Kahn, and he's also the host of the Carol Takeaway Only podcast. I am a big fan of what he's doing. I've been listening to his podcast all throughout the pandemic, and the work he's doing is just absolutely amazing, and I'm so excited that he decided to join me on my podcast because he's very, very insightful and just a lovely, lovely human being. I cannot wait to get you to that episode. But first, uh, I got to tell you about a couple things. One thing is we have a brand new show here on National Restaurant Radio, and it will be released tomorrow. Our very first installment of the Nashville Restaurant Radio Roundup presented by What Chefs Want. I'm so excited about this opportunity to bring all of the new exciting things that are coming to the Nashville community. We're going to talk about restaurant openings, restaurant closings, when chefs move to different jobs. We're going to talk about the best restaurants in town. We're going to talk about the hottest restaurants in town. We're going to talk about the best places to eat brunch. Uh, From a local's perspective, my co-host, Delia Joe Ramsey from Eater Nashville, is going to be here talking about all the things she's doing as well. So we want this to be the episode you listen to if you want to know what's happening in the restaurant scene in Nashville. And that comes out tomorrow, our first episode, which is going to be a guide to dining out in post-pandemic Nashville. So hopefully you listen to that and enjoy it. I do want to talk to you a little bit about FOH and BOH, Foe and Bow, as they are called. This is a website that I have so many people, so many friends that are hiring people. And right now, People are, aren't ready to come back to work, and I totally understand that. But there is a website right now. If you do need people, you can log into, and it is free, 90 days. You get in free access, no strings attached. This is something they're doing as a response to COVID-19. If you're looking for a job, you want to find the right place, go create a profile. It's free as well for you, and it's a unique way to do it. So I think you'll uh, just play with it. Go check it out. It's at fohandboh.com. Uh, they're called Foe and Bow. And I want to thank them for sponsoring the show. They are a locally owned and operated company. This is only in Nashville. So support local guys. These are the people to use. I also want to say thank you to Springer Mountain Farms Chicken. If you want to join the flock, I suggest you go to springermountainfarms.com, put in your email address, and you will get really cool recipes, up-to-date news, everything to your inbox I uh, got mine yesterday. Again, I'm so excited. Every time I get an email from Springer, Springer Mountain Farms Chicken, um, it's just fantastic. Thank you for supporting us as well. And I'm excited to get you uh, into my YouTube channel. We are now live. You can see me. If you're watching this on YouTube, here I am. You can see me. You can see me talk to Howie. I'm putting new episodes up all the time. So go to our website, nashvillerestaurantradio.com. There's special offers from our sponsors. You can also find Uh, links to our YouTube videos, as well as links to every single episode we have here. If you scroll down the homepage, you have my favorite episodes. I kind of put a little little blurb about each one. You can click to listen to those also. And I thank you, the listener, for your support of listening to Nashville Restaurant Radio. And um, let's get on with the interview. I want to bring in 
uh, Howie Kahn, such a such just amazing guy. I hope that you guys enjoy this as much as I enjoyed creating it. All right, so we want to welcome in Howie Kahn. Thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Brandon. You started off your episode yesterday on takeaway only, and you said, yeah, I'm not going to ask you how you're doing. Uh, you're not going to ask me how I'm doing. It's invalid. You said there's, uh, there's protest, cities are on fire, restaurants are closed, cops are killing black people. Let's get into it. Yeah. And I don't know of a better way to start a, a podcast. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, you know, with Takeaway Only, we've done, we've run 56 shows. I've done more interviews than that. Um, even more if you count pre-interviews. And, the, you know, the strangest question since COVID started in mid-March and all the restaurants started shutting down is, is how are you? I mean, it, it's so loaded, right? It's this question we ask each other as a f- conversational formality. And, and usually it's just to hear the other person say they're fine and you pass on to the next thing. And, and right now the obvious thing is no one's fine. You know, people are, are suffering. People are angry. People are, are losing money. People are dispirited. People are fighting hard for survival. They're fighting hard for racial equality. They're fighting hard to change the political system in this country. They're fighting hard to change media. They're fighting hard for justice. They're fighting hard for for you know, rights surrounding food and human rights. So it's, it's a, it's a big, it's a big moment. Huge moment. It's a moment that, I mean, I've, it's been so much introspection for myself also just trying. I mean, I think it's almost, I, I, just, I interviewed somebody on Monday, Kim Totsky, who's a local um, CEO of a grocery chain. And she said that she really feels like at the end of this, it's what our world needed. I mean, just for the environment and for every single person to really stop, sit back and think about who they are in the grand scheme of all of this. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I, I, I think holding on to some semblance of optimism is, is really important. I think it's almost impossible to get through this if, if the thought that change is not going to occur becomes the predominant one. I, I, I think, you know, the Sam Cooke, a change is going to come thing is the song that kind of has to be in the back of your head to get through a moment like this. But I think it also has to be combined with the realism of, you know, buckle up, it's going to be rough, and it might last for a while. You know, there's, there's, there's an endurance factor too. So I think the combination of, of the optimism with the, with the endurance and the commitment to both things is, is maybe one of the more important realizations I've had for myself. It's, it's always kind of about taking this deep breath. Yeah, a hundred percent. And um, you started a podcast at the beginning of all of this and yeah. it is called Takeaway Only. Right, and it is a podcast. Let's see ex- exactly what it was. It was an emergency podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. Right. Why did you start that? Um, I've been covering the the food industry uh, and and you know the the culture surrounding food and the people who who make it, grow it, provide it, dream about it, conceive you know new ways to bring it to people. I've I've been working that beat my entire career. I'm 42. 
I'm 42 years old now. So I've been covering, you know, the food world since before there was any acknowledgement that there was a food world. There were just people who cooked and there were places you went to, to eat. I did a story for, you know, GQ magazine, which was one of the first of my career in, in the early 2000s. And there was this really novel term that came up in the story, farm to table right? It was about mm-hmm. a guy who went to farms and, and brought people to eat on farms. And it was the newest, hottest, you know, the, the, the newest, hottest thing. So I have been around um, for the most positive wave of growth in the food industry that the world has ever seen. I've, I've been around for many good years. So I, I felt like as everything was going under, as all of the people who I've covered um, we're starting to struggle in a major way. We just decided, and by we, I mean, uh, I have a podcast production company with my wife, Casey, and um, our partner, Rob Corso. And we decided that, you know, now was the most important time to, to stick with the story. It wasn't time to, to bail or to sit at home and think about what was next. There was a real urgency in, in that moment um, to save restaurants. So I think that's where this started, just to continue to get those voices out there in a meaningful way and hopefully direct some attention to a cause um, where millions of jobs were suddenly lost and on the line and no one knew whether, you know, they were going to come back. The restaurant, independent restaurant industry is the second largest um, job provider in the country. So for that section of the economy to suddenly go dark, uh, seemed really dangerous. And, you know, the only thing I had any control over was to try to shine, shine some light on that story and those people. And that is a, it's a incredible story. I mean, just the, I, the opportunity for everybody in the country to hear what you've been doing has been amazing. And I want to get more into that, but I also want to get back to, you mentioned you've been covering food forever in, yeah. in your first article at GQ. Did you coin the phrase well, farm to table? No, no, I didn't. I didn't coin the phrase farm to table. I think it was, it was coined sometime in the early nineties. Um, but uh, you know, it was, it was really interesting because this story was about a guy uh, named Jim Denovan, who's a, a chef and also an artist. And he has a company called outstanding in the field, which has now grown, you know, to be this kind of major commercial thing. He tours around the country. They do like 60, 70 or were before COVID doing like 60 or 70 dinners during a year. And he's done car commercials and he's done these massive drawing installations. There's a documentary film about him. But back, back then, you know, he was doing six to eight dinners a year, just trying to convince people to come to a farm um, and have a dinner cooked by a chef. And for the most part, unless you had been, you know, a devotee of, of home gardening or, you know, an early farm share in an urban city or majorly into the idea of Alice Waters, there was virtually no connection between people and farms at, at that time. And this isn't that long ago, right? I mean, people had no connection to how their food was was grown. So, you know, that seemed like a really groundbreaking story at the time as well. It, well, I mean, it was. What What is the thing that got you into that? Where did that thought process come from? Did you grow up yeah, near I mean, farms? What was no, your, what's your I, kind I'm of story? From, I'm, I'm from Michigan, so, you know, not that far from, from a farm or a body of water. If you grow up in 
uh, you know, suburban or, or, or rural Michigan, you're definitely seeing the seasons change. Or I, I was. I mean, it was very obvious. Michigan has um, a huge share of the sour cherry crop. I think they grow more sour cherries in Michigan than any anywhere else in the country. I think it's something like seventy percent of of, the, of that crop. So, did you write the sour cherry article? I, I think I read an article that you wrote that was. I wrote a story about, about cherries a couple. Was weeks it about ago. cherries? Yeah, yes. for uh, for Prior, which is um, an awesome travel company and content company that um, some friends of mine have put together. So yeah, I I wrote about sort of cherry nostalgia. Um, it was an yeah, amazing I mean, piece. Thank thank you, thank you. It's always it's always nice to write about Michigan. I love Michigan very very much. Um, I've lived in New York for. Almost twenty, almost twenty years, um, and I think I miss Michigan now more than more than ever. Which do you, is kind do you of what the story. I only, you know, the like show Brandon's putting his his hand up because Michigan's shaped like a hand, and you can sort of geolocate where you're from by pointing to a spot on, on your palm, and it is useful for for people not from Michigan. You don't do that in Michigan. It's like it's like wearing the the uh, the band's t shirt to the concert. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> from there like you don't do it in in michigan it's maybe useful if if you're trying to describe you know where you're from and you're like in italy or something or spain or you know if if people really have have no clue so i don't do that reflexively but there there is a use there is a use for it everybody that i meet in nashville who says i'm from michigan they go from you know and they just put their hand up immediately and show you with their hand and i'm like i'm i'm not familiar they're they're trying to be they're trying. trying to michigan there's there's um a way that people from Michigan want to be friendly and helpful. So that's, that's definitely part of it. There's a lot of people from Michigan and Nashville. There is. And uh, they're all lovely, lovely people. And you know what? They are very prideful of Michigan. And I love that. And there's something about that that makes me feel like I need to go spend more time in Michigan. I've been to Detroit one time, visited the old Tiger Stadium, saw Cecil Fielder hit a home run from Deadway Center. It was a really cool moment for me to be Amazing. able to. Done that was a big. Did. That was a big season when he hit fifty-one home runs. That was like a big, a big marker at the time. Oh yeah, it was huge, and he went out of the ballpark too. Yeah. So I want to pivot here because I've done a little research on you. And yesterday, if you saw the social medias, you saw everything blow up uh, with people posting pictures of Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. Anthony Bourdain was i've seen a meme and I'm, I'm paraphrasing but it says if anybody out there had a show that was vehemently trying to get you to learn other cultures and understand other people it was anthony bourdain mm-hmm. you interviewed anthony bourdain mm-hmm. and yeah. um a few, th- a few times tell me kind of what thoughts you have right now i mean going a couple years later and uh the last interview I read was Wall Street Journal, and it was two months before he passed away. Yeah, that profile was eerily close um, to the end. You know, I I tried to take a sort of social media hiatus yesterday, so I didn't catch a lot of the the Bourdain Day posts, and I know they were mixed in with many other in, important news stories. Uh, so this is really the first time in this cycle of this, that I'm having a chance to sit down and, and, and talk about it out loud. I mean, it's, it's, it's so sad. It's, it's, it still makes, I, I feel, you know, I'm choked up and I just miss the guy, you know, I think a lot of us, 
um, miss him terribly. There's people who were, you know, I know who are super close to him and their lives will will never be the same without him. But we're all enriched by having had him here and having him communicate at such a high level and in such a beautiful, open, rigorous way for so long. He created so much. Um, and there's not a part of it I wouldn't want to go back to for even a few minutes or an hour or, or a day or a week to just watch it all through or, or, or read it all through. I mean, I think all of us who, who give any kind of shit about food media and, and the world are all wondering what he would have said during this time and how his voice would have been expressed through the COVID moment on through the, you know, George Floyd, David McAtee protests, continuation of the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter protests, because that relates to food and restaurants too, of course. And I just miss, I miss him. I miss having the ability to cover him. I miss having the ability to have a conversation with him. I miss seeing new things that he creates. I, I miss knowing that somebody that brave was was in the world. It's really hard to get a show made, in, you know, in a major media outlet that's your show, that does it the way you want to do it, that doesn't compromise, that tells the stories you want to tell. And he pulled that off. He did, and I think there's a lot we can learn from his shows. I think even going back and watching Parts Unknown or any of his other shows, you can see that just his attitude as to who he was, like go back and watch those and, and try and emulate that guy because he didn't care who you were, which everybody was equal to him, unless you were a bad tipper or you were rude to a server. But yeah, I mean, then you were, then you were, then you were dead to him. But I mean, um. You know, I'm I'm thinking about his his writing, and you know, this is this is a guy whose first major book, um, or whose you know, whose first batch of major writings included a part about going to Mexico to see where restaurant workers in America really come from. And that was that was a revolutionary gesture. I don't know what year that book was published in, but you know, on on, on our show on Takeaway Only, um, we get into undocumented workers a, a, a fair amount. We've done several episodes and have have more coming up, and and that's a story that's undercovered and not spoken about enough in 2020. You know, Tony writing about that in, like, it must have been the early 2000s, was just so far ahead. And he's not an investigative reporter by training either, and he did that work. He just, well, he just cared. Yeah. I mean, he, he just... Saw, he, he, he saw what mattered. He saw what was important. He understood inequality in a deep way, and he understood how to start shifting the spotlight. He did, and he did, I don't think... I think every the, the, the allure to me for him, I did I never got to meet him. Um, when I read Kitchen Confidential when I was 25 years old, mm-hmm. um, I learned a lot about myself growing mm-hmm. up in the industry and just kind of what I could be doing and um, a lot of life lessons. I, I made that required reading. I've been in food sales for many, many years. And um, yeah. that was required reading for anybody that came into the industry who didn't have an extensive background. Said so you need to read this book. This is This is what it is but he's so genuine the thing i loved about him was that he didn't do anything for any reason 
It wasn't a, oh, if I do this, I'll get this. He did it because that's what he cared about. He didn't give a shit. He was just like, this is something that's important to me. I'm going to do it. And it, it was so authentic. But I, I think what you're, what you're actually saying is he did it for a very important reason. He did it because it was the, the right thing. Like some people just 100%. inherently know what the right thing to do is. And, and we're in a big mess in, in this country because I think a lot of people get away from that. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a right thing to do in regards to people. There's a right way to treat people. There's a right way to be inclusive and accepting um, and not self-righteous, not too proud, generous, giving, charitable, hospitable. Uh, yes. I'm going to, and I'm going to pivot to that because one of the quotes an Anthony Bourdain quote that I have written down right here says, if you're 22, physically fit, hungry to learn and be better, I urge you to travel as far and widely as possible. Sleep on floors. If you have to find out how other people live and eat and cook and learn from wherever you go. I think that's right. I mean, I, I always thought that there should be conscripted restaurant service in America where every person who turns maybe 16 should have to work in service of some sort for six months or for a year as some kind of national program of getting to know how to deal with people and seeing people from different walks of life in an active way. It's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to do it. I know countries have conscripted military service, you know, which I would never be in favor of in the United States of America, but wouldn't it be an interesting society? Wouldn't it be interesting if everybody had to work in a restaurant for six months or a food bank or some, something? I think it definitely adds some perspective to our, our nation. Uh, for I, sure. I, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know who I would even be without having had that experience. I know. I've been, I think it's, there's a certain type of person who, who I speak to, I know you speak to as well. And it's people who are givers, people mm-hmm. who really understand true hospitality and what it yeah. means to, to gain, to give love in the way that, you know, the book, the five love languages, you know, some people have acts of service and that's certainly right. in your heart. You, right. you get something out of helping other people. And I think that's why the restaurant industry is so powerful and it's so hard to get, out of so to speak because it's just it's in your blood it's who you are it's in your dna so yeah. whenever anything first happens in this country restaurants are the first ones to respond right um, it's true just doers doers and you you interviewed jose andres mm. of world central kitchen mm. on takeaway only mm-hmm. i mean that's his mission yeah i mean connecting two dots um i was working on a story about jose and world central kitchen for the wall street journal in puerto rico when tony died and jose um was was doing some service work and just didn't show up to the story because he was so sort of deeply destroyed by by tony's death we did it we did it later but you know it was very telling for me that it was the priority for jose was to continue serving people and he was he was feeding people after a volcano erupted and he just couldn't pull himself away from that to do a media story and that's an example of doing the right thing you know he 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 stuck to where he was most needed and, and understood that we could catch up later What do you, 
So going back to um, takeaway only. Yeah. What are some of the people that you've interviewed? What's been the most impactful things you've kind of taken away? It's interesting. I've spent the last, you know, two and a half months asking people for their big <laughs> takeaways. And a few people have asked me off off microphone what mine have been. And they're they're evolving. I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot, you know, first first of all, you know, the power of of the individual and what everybody's story means to them and what they bring to it in terms of their their background and their experience. I mean, that's been a huge thing to me to pay attention to the person and try to start there to understand where that person is coming from and then how they envision the world. So it's it's been a, a, an exercise in deep listening for me, which has always been my favorite part of being a, a reporter, being a journalist. It's the opportunity to ask questions and let people talk. So that's one. And to try to present that to the rest of the world as something that's important in this time. I mean, my, my show, it's not about, you know, it, it's not about the show. It's about the people who are, are on it. It's not about takeaway only. It's about Christian Gill. It's about Omar Tate. It's about uh, Nina Compton. It's about, you know, Javier and Arlene Barzola, who are a father and daughter from Ecuador running a small restaurant in, in Queens, you know, in, in, in one of the parts of the country that's been hardest, hardest hit by COVID and just hearing how they've gotten through it. Everyone's gotten through this in a different way. Everybody's at a different point in their trajectory. So I, I think the listening piece has been hugely important. I think just hearing about the hustle and the problem solving and, and the way people are, are fighting to make change and to survive has been uh, incredibly moving and and the way people have started new things from from nothing you know the way people are have moved outside of their comfort zone and their areas of expertise to start foundations and to start community advocacy groups and mutual aid societies and human potential is an amazing thing to watch grow in a crisis People are, are doing incredible things and they have risen to and continue to rise to the occasion in an incredible way. That's one of the things I've kind of picked up on um, is just how resilient we are. Yeah. You know, if you ask somebody in February, what would you do if everything shut down? You know, if you were in a business meeting and you sat down and said, we're going to shut the restaurant down for two months. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're just going to see what happens. Everybody would go, Ooh, how, how do we do that? We can't do that. We can't do that. And some yeah. aren't going to make it, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But just the way that everybody has had to stop and think outside the box, to use a, a, a phrase that's way overused. But um, I, don't, I, do think, I think it's been just amazing. You know, in Nashville, we kind of had a double whammy here. Um, With the tornado know, and then COVID. Yeah, we had a tornado on March the 2nd, late night, March yeah. 2nd, March 3rd, which yeah. took out, I mean, a ton of restaurants. And mm-hmm. our city was reeling. And then literally 10 days later everything closes we're in the middle of march madness here we had um the downtown was completely vibrant the sec tournament was or the first round of the nc of the ncaa march madness was going and everything just stopped gone yeah Bye. and the way that everybody had to kind of pivot around that and where we're at now i mean it's just i don't know i'm a different person than i was yeah there. i think i think we all we all are and we all have to be and it's just it's just starting. I mean, I, I I think COVID was the 
the tip of the iceberg in terms of the change that needs to happen, the reflection that needs to happen, the ways we all have to reckon with and, you know, fight systemic racism. And that exists in all industries. So eyes are wide open. What do you do? What do you do personally to, I mean, there's a lot of anxiety that can happen right now. There's a lot of just stuff that happens in stress. I'm, I'm a believer that stress is a choice, but what do you, how are, what are you, how do you personally cope? <laughs> um, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, take care of my family. I have a young, young kid who I want to keep happy and safe. He's four. Um, my wife and I, I mean, our, our focus is on, on him and trying to make this, the best world possible. So I, I, you know, I, I try to talk to a lot of people. I try to gain a lot of information. I donate to causes that I feel are, are important. I think being extremely giving, being extremely generous and being extremely open are things I can do. They're things I can do every single, single day. So that's, I think the basis of, of my coping you know, it's being charitable, it's being a good listener, it's, it's, it's learning how to be a better activist. I, I think that's, that's a start. So, I mean, that's for people that are listening. I mean, I like to ask these types of questions because mm. I love your perspective. And for somebody who's speaking to people who are actually making a difference and who's making a difference himself, you know, I think that everybody's in the same boat where we're all just trying to figure out what we can do. And I think I appreciate you saying that. So I think, I think also, I mean, something that's, that's, that's true is kind of getting comfortable with, with the idea that maybe I haven't done a good enough job in any of those fields. And, and maybe now is time to really double down and focus on, on doing better in all regards. And I, I, I think that kind of self-reflection is okay too and and striving for for more i think now is a good time to do that as as well 100 percent. and you know i i don't want to say that and make you feel like if you're not doing that you're a bad person i mean some people are no some people don't have it's 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 all it's all really personal i mean all all i can advocate for is, is i think people should should figure out what it is that's the best they can do and then try to do it I, um, I did like a kind of a what I learned because that's a question I get to. What have you learned, Brandon, from talking? You've done 49 podcasts in two months. Mm-hmm. What have you learned? Mm-hmm. And I did, a, I did an episode called What I've Learned. And I said, there's three things. I would say stay healthy mentally mm-hmm. before yeah. physically. Like you got to stay mentally healthy. And if you can be physically healthy, great. Stay mm-hmm. hungry. Mm-hmm. Identify your next thing. Don't eat mm-hmm. what you caught today. Look mm-hmm. for the future. Mm-hmm. And then help. Yeah. So get out there and help doesn't have to be, um, I physically went out and did something. Help means I got a friend who might not be doing so great right now and I picked up the phone and I called him. I've reconnected with somebody and said, hey, everything's going to be okay. Can I do something for you? That's as little as you can do versus as most you can do. Yeah, there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways to help and there's a lot of help needed for sure. Yes. So I don't want to get off this topic, but I think you're a very fascinating individual and you've done some, <laughs> and he's like, great, let's, let's move off this really introspective, deep topic. And let's talk about you. Let's talk oh, about what you've accomplished. Okay. <laughs> let's not. So you are a James Beard award winner. 
I, I am. I did what win one that, of those. What was that like? It was really exciting. It was, um, it was a long time ago already. It was 2008. It's thrilling to be recognized, you know, for, for a professional achievement, especially when the professional achievement is, is something that, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, writing is hard. Figuring out how to do it professionally is hard. Um, accessing that world is, is hard. Is it competitive? Finding good stories is hard. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how much room, and this is, so I, I won that award in 2008, and magazines were doing pretty well then, right? They were, the books were thicker. There were more pages. If there's more pages, there's more opportunity. Sure. Um, there's still a lot of people fighting for that real estate, um, but there were more pages then. There's fewer pages now, and there's more people fighting for the pages. Um, so I think it's extremely competitive, and it's extremely important for magazines to create places that are diverse, that express curiosity, that do you know a Bourdain thing and, and shine a light into as many important corners of the world as, as they possibly can. Um, but yeah, I mean, winning that award was was thrilling. It's, you know, as a kid, you get recognized, I think, all the time. You get like little awards from your teachers and you get gold stars on your papers and you get smiley faces and, and stickers. Um, and as, as an adult, I think it, it, it's up to every adult to find enough pride in their work to carry them through their career or carry them through day to day or carry them through enough until there's a point where it's time to, to make a change. Um, you know, you got to figure out a way how to pat yourself on the back. Otherwise, it, it, it's it's very hard. Recognition is very seldom. People do not put gold medals. You know, the James Beard Award's not gold, but it's it's bronze colored or whatever. People do not put medals around your neck on a regular basis as as a grown up. So, I think I'm just grateful to have ever had that moment. I th- I think I'm still. Um, moved by the fact that it happened and, and, and grateful for that kind of thing. It's an amazing honor. And I'm so fascinated by what you do. What was, and forgive me, um, what was the actual piece of work that you were honored for? We were talking about it earlier. It was that piece about Jim Denovan. It was called The Wandering Chef. And it was about, I mean... Okay, the one in GQ. Yeah, Brandon. I mean, this was, you know, an era in in magazines where you could pitch a story and you could tell an editor and an editor would agree to send you to report on the subject for like as long as you wanted. I went and traveled with Jim. <laughs> I, it was like three weeks, you know, now it's like you get a, you know, a 35 minute zoom with a person. Well, now we're all at home. So like, you know, you can't go anywhere and, and report necessarily um, with a few exceptions. If you know, you're a, staffer for a newspaper you're still in the world reporting but like freelancers are not traveling to report stories right now it's just not it's not on the table maybe that'll open up again soon but even when that's not the case you know the travel has has scaled back the budgets are much much smaller um there's no way that story would have ever could ever happen now in a way i flew to seattle to meet jim and i called jim on the phone and i said hey 
I just landed in Seattle where we agreed to meet. Where, where should I meet? Where should we meet up? Where should we start our interview? And he said, oh, I'm, I, I decided to go to Vancouver. So, <laughs> you know, the subject of my story decides to go to, to Vancouver. I had flown to Seattle per our arrangement. And so I call the office and, and I say, my subject's in Vancouver. And it was like, no problem. We'll call travel and you'll go to Vancouver tomorrow. And then I went to Vancouver and I just stayed with this person on the road. And we drove from Canada down through Washington into Idaho, um, into Wyoming, into Utah, ended up in Colorado. And it was just like, oh man, like the romance and, and the sort of magic of being able to travel uh, with a subject in that way. So in a way, like having that kind of, <laughs> having that kind of access and that kind of time, um, you know, set me up to be rewarded in a certain way. Like that kind of privilege to think about something for so long and to live with somebody in that way and to be able to go that deep with somebody. It took me a week to get Jim to sit down at a table for an actual interview. Like he just didn't understand like what my purpose was being there. He hadn't given a lot of interviews at that point. He was shy. Um, and and <laughs> it was it was like that almost famous thing where you're just chasing around your subject trying to to get them to talk to you. But like the whole experience is, is it's just from a different era. You can still do your... that as a reporter. You just have to pay for it yourself. Yeah. Which isn't really happening. What, um, what, how did your thought change throughout that interview when you're flying out to Seattle? Cause I, when I do interviews, like I like to have a general roadmap. I did one interview where I had no roadmap and I will never do that again. <laughs> Yeah, I like to have kind of an idea of how what we're going to talk about, how we're going to talk about it. Yeah. You're on your way there. How did that change as you started driving around, going from city to city? Because you had to pivot, I, right? Well, I was really well prepared. Um, I had some people at the magazine who were way more experienced than me, and were good mentors. Um, you know, the the person who assigned and edited that story is a guy named Andy Ward, who is now the editorial director of Random House, and he edits great books. And he's kind of been known in the narrative journalism industry as being one of the smartest, being the most generous, being one of the most sensitive. And, you know, that also included mentorship. At, at the time, I was a young writer. I was writing my first stories. It was really, you know, the beginning of something for me. And he... Um, did the right amount of hand-holding. He sent me stories that he thought would inspire me. Um, I had been a fact-checker also at the magazine, so I'd been working with reporters for years. And, you know, within those exchanges, I was always learning about their process. And there were some writers whose voice and whose tone and whose stories were really muscular and their prose included a lot of their point of view. Um because they had sort of the confidence and almost the arrogance to do so. And for me, I just always knew that my stories were going to be about my subjects. I, you know, my point of view is important. You have to have one as a writer, but there's almost um, a measure of, of, of faith I take in these stories where I'm going to hand it over to, I'm going to just watch, I'm going to be patient. And with Jim, it was just like, he he's a force of nature in in his own right and i think understanding that the story 
wasn't about me took a lot of the pressure off. I just had to be a, be the best observer of Jim. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, you know, I could being prepared, being prepared is like having insurance, right? It's great to have insurance. It's responsible to have insurance. It's good to pay for the policy. If, if you can, um, you're not always going to use it, but it's, it's good that it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's good for it to be there. So one of the things that I learned while I was preparing was that you wrote a book for Simon and Schuster called how to become a private investigator. I did. And it takes place uh, largely in Nashville. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I did not read the book, mm-hmm. but I, I, the, the, the beginning of the book um, takes place in the restaurant and uh, it's called the puffy muffin, which oh, is, yeah. in a, which is in a, a strip mall in Brentwood. It is. And been there many times. It's, uh, it's about a, a PI who, who lives around there. Her name is Sheila Waisaki, and she's a great investigator. She's a great reporter. I think she's a really good person. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I did write a book about private investigating. It's part of a larger series that Simon did um, called Masters at Work, and it's about people who are um, and have found their ways to the top of their professions. Did you have you always have you had a fascination for private investigators or no, not a, not 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 at all, but the but I am fascinated in in how people do their jobs. I'm fascinated in how people help define their professions, and I'm really interested in how people's professions help define their own identity. So it was it was kind of an and this this series is all um, essentially long form magazine journalists and newspaper reporters writing about work writing there's um ones about how to become a neurosurgeon ones how to become a hairdresser how to become a yoga instructor and they just kind of turn these over to to journalists who they thought would do a good job uh you know private investigating um is not something i've categorically had a big interest in 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 my life at all but i think part of the fun of being a being a reporter being a writer being a journalist is is stretching it out and writing about different things i i didn't intend um at the beginning of my career to write about food as much as i have i'm glad my career has taken me on that course but it's still fun for me to write about something outside of that um when i can do you uh we're we're getting close to a time where 45 minutes goes by pretty quick Mm -hmm. and um you just said you're fascinated by how people's jobs, what they do, their vocational choices shape who they are. Sure. How do you feel like what you do has shaped who you are? That's a great question. Um, you know, having spent so much time reporting on, on the hospitality industry, I, I think I've become much more open to that concept. I think hospitality isn't something that necessarily just happens in a restaurant. I think it's a kind of way of life. We can be hospitable to each other as friends. We can be hospitable to each other as as colleagues and cohorts. You can be hospitable to your your partner, your husband, your wife, your child. It's a way of being generous. It's a way of serving. It's a way of addressing people's needs. So I think I've I've brought that into my own life in in a serious way. I also think, you know, writing about food and being in that world for the last 20 years has has given me a way to 
try at least to observe what Tony observed. And, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to report all over the world and then talk about all different cultures and people from all different backgrounds. And that's been important too. Well, thank you so much for being here. What would you want to say to the people of Nashville, Tennessee and around the world? You know, what, uh, what kind of final Jerry's final thought would you have? I mean, if I'm talking to people in Nashville, just go have lunch at Arnold's. That's like the most <laughs> important thing, I, you know, because self, selfishly, like I need Arnold's to exist, you know, in, in perpetuity. I need to be able to have lunch at Arnold's when I come to Nashville. So like, please, for my sake and for yours, keep that restaurant going. I think Arnold's, uh, I'm, Khalil and I have talked like nine times about coming on the show and he's been so busy and he's the, uh, he's, he's the busiest and i think he's the greatest he he really is he's uh he's the best and we're going to make that happen and yes go eat at arnold's uh everybody out there that, that's definitely something to be said well thank you so much for coming on my podcast today and i wish you nothing but the most the best of luck and success and if you're out there check out howie's podcast takeaway only and it's found everywhere that podcasts are available. And uh, what else you got going on? Anything else you need? You want to plug or anything you want to tell people to go check out of yours that you're doing? That's the plug, man. That's I think that's a, that's good. All right. Well, thank you, Howie. Have a wonderful rest of your day, sir. Brandon, thank you so much. I'm honored to be a part of your show. Thank you for having me. So big thank you to Howie Khan for coming on Nashville Restaurant Radio. He's a busy guy and. Um, I just appreciate his kind of a worldly perspective and uh, it's fresh and just uh, such a wonderful dude. So thanks again, Howie. And I uh, hope to see you guys back here tomorrow for our very first installment of Nashville Restaurant Radio Roundup presented by What Chefs Want. Thanks, guys. Hope you're doing well. Love you. Bye.